Hey, welcome to Rock Writ. It is nice to be back, and I'm glad you could make it. Let's dive in, shall we? New York Rocker was a punk new wave magazine that published 54 issues between 1976 and 1982. The mag was started by Alan Betrock, who had previously published the fanzines Jams, that's with a Z, and Rock Marketplace. After 12 issues of New York Rocker, Betrock was ready to call it a day, but a contributor named Andy Schwartz was keen to keep a good thing going, and so he took over. Under Andy's direction, New York Rocker continued to be this amazing resource for local and international music fans. The mag looked sharp, and the writing was equally great, with a cast of contributors including Miriam Linna, Lester Bangs, Lisa Persky, John Savage, Gerard Cosloy, Ira Kaplan, Howard Wolfing, and some New England whippersnapper named Byron Coley. New York Rocker may have had high production values and circulation, but it was a fanzine through and through. You can ask any indie musician or music fan who was around 40 years ago, the mag helped inform and shape the tastes of a whole generation. I'm greatly indebted to the writer and WFMU DJ Jesse Jarno. He published a terrific piece on the history of the rocker for the web scene Perfect Sound Forever, and Jesse's research was very helpful as I prepared for this interview, so I commend that piece to you. And that just leaves me to thank you for tuning into Rockrit. If you're a fan, please consider leaving a review and rating to help us expand our little empire. Okay, please enjoy this chat with Andy Schwartz all about the history of New York rocker on Rockrit. What was life like in Westchester County? It was a New York suburb, I guess? Yeah, it is. I lived in the town of Larchmont in Westchester County, about 30 miles north of Manhattan. It was a very idyllic upper middle class or middle, solidly middle class upbringing. Was it an easy place to come into contact with rock and roll? Uh, yes and no. We had the benefits of uh, AM radio, of course. To some extent, like when I was a kid, I had some exposure to live music from the time I was like 14. There were local bands. There were some local bands, you know, when I was in high school, uh, junior high and high school. Uh, so there was something of a local band scene. It was not that widespread and not that many recordings came out of it, unlike other teen scenes such as Minneapolis, St. Paul, where there was a lot of recording. You know, like uh, the first gigs that I saw, first live gigs I saw were uh, black artists. Uh, there was a uh, vocal group from Brooklyn called the Jive Five and their great lead singer, Eugene Pitt. I saw them in a high school gym in, I think, 66. And I saw Chuck Berry in New York, in Manhattan, at a venue that would later become Bill Graham's Fillmore East, was then called the Village Theater. And that was uh, spring of 67. In my uh, senior year of high school, uh, Bill Graham's Fillmore East opened when I was a junior in uh, the spring of 68. Th that venue was very close to where my father's parents lived in uh, the East Village of Manhattan. Hmm. So I could prevail upon my grandmother to go down to the box office five blocks away uh, when tickets went on sale for shows at the Fillmore East, and I, of which I saw a great many. You know, I, I saw shows there. I, I did not, I was not old enough or yet hip enough to get into uh, clubs that were 21 and over, like Steve Paul's scene, for example. Uh, I never, there were other legendary places like Cafe or Go Go that I never attended. But in high school, I certainly saw my share of sh important shows and, and artists. 
who are some of those artists that you saw? I saw The Doors twice. Wow. What was that like? Gripping and galvanizing. Edgy, to use an overused word. I saw Hendrix at Hunter College in New York with the experience. I saw The Grateful Dead multiple times. I saw Janis Joplin with the first two of her three bands, both at Fillmore East. I saw um, the Jefferson Airplane on several occasions. I saw uh, some blues artists uh, before 1970, including Buddy Guy and B.B. King and Albert King. I saw Moby Grape kind of on the downside, but I, I did see them in 68 at Fillmore East. Gee, uh, you know, I saw Sam and Dave you know, they had like seven horns, two drummers, they had dancing girls. It sounds like music was more than a passing interest for you. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And were you reading any music press at the time? Yeah, in high school, I was re I started re uh, fairly early on. I was reading the first so-called serious rock magazine, Crawdaddy. I picked up on Rolling Stone and hit parader when it was when the editor was a guy named Jim Delahant who hmm. passed away just a couple of years ago that was an underrated magazine hit parader and did you have this notion of wanting to be a rock writer yourself after reading these things i wrote some pieces about music for my high school paper when i was a senior you know a couple of concert reviews or record reviews so i kind of, i was kind of into it I didn't have any thoughts of, I played guitar in mostly in a folk manner. I didn't really have any thoughts of being a performer or a songwriter, but the writing appealed to me. Did it seem realistic at the time that you could make a living writing about music? Not particularly, no. No. Not when I was 18. Yeah. You went to Minneapolis for college, university, is that right? I attended two different schools, but the mainly... I, uh, the first one was a, a small liberal arts college in Wisconsin. It was called, it's called Beloit College. And the main reason that that was, one of the reasons why that experience, my one year there was important, was because in late, toward the end of 69, Beloit College was the scene of the first multi-day blues festival. In other words, completely a blues festival, not a blues and jazz festival, or a rock festival with some blues artists, but a something called the Wisconsin Delta Blues Festival, where I got to see all mo, many of the surviving country blues artists, including uh, Mississippi Fred McDowell, the Reverend Robert Wilkins, Book of White, uh, Sunhouse, and others. You know, and that was that was an important experience. Later on. Some time passed and I did move to Minneapolis and I did enroll in the University of Minnesota, which I attended rather sporadically. In my period, my time in Minneapolis from age 21 to 26, which is 72 to 77, I played in a bar band that didn't perform any original songs, you know, rock and roll band. And I worked in a uh, now legendary record store in Minneapolis. It's called Or Folk Joke Opus. Mm -hmm. And it survived for many years after my tenure there and was actually became another store called Treehouse Records for many years. So, you know, for decades, there was a record, an independent record store at this particular corner in South Minneapolis. So I worked in the store and that was a lot of fun. 
I learned a lot. Were you coming into contact with all sorts of like obscure new sounds there? Yes, both old and new, because the store stocked, in addition to stocking independent releases, including some of the first so-called punk rock or underground indie singles by people like uh, television, uh, Willie Loco Alexander, uh, Patti Smith. The store also carried uh, a substantial stock of uh, 45s from the 50s and from the 50s and 60s, the records that were still in print then by Little Richard, uh, Chuck Berry, and many others. The store, you know, was pretty eclectic, uh, had a jazz section, sold uh, black music, R&B, as well as whatever, you know, whatever albums and singles started and also carried imports from overseas, from the UK, as well as Germany. So, you know, it was, yeah, it was very eclectic. The principal record buyer, Peter Jesperson, went on to be a co-founder of the Twin Tone record label and also managed the replacements. That's incredible. And I know it has this reputation for being a place that was more than just somewhere to buy records. It actually nurtured true music community. Was that your experience there as well in the 70s? Yeah, because at least I can think of at least one band that rehearsed in the basement of the store. Also, we had in-store appearances by Talking Heads, Ramones, Robert Gordon and Link Ray and others. Were you doing any music writing at this time? Yes, I was right first for the University of Minnesota Daily. The University of Minnesota at that time, there were 30,000 students on the Twin Cities campuses combined. And there was actually a daily paper. And I did record reviews and started to do some concert reviews for the University of Minnesota Daily. Later on, I wrote for a couple of different weekly papers uh, based in Minneapolis, including City Pages, and uh, one called Metropolis. In Metropolis, I had a regular column. It was called Blues, Rags, and Hollers. I could pretty much write about what I you know, felt like covering. Would these publications pay at all? Yeah, they did. They didn't, they didn't pay much, but they paid more than most websites pay today. I'm not surprised. How did you eventually hook up with the New York Rocker? You know, those, those publications like that had a lot of advertising because they didn't have to compete with the internet and or even necessarily with the daily uh with the daily newspapers like the minneapolis star tribune the, the minneapolis star tribune st paul pioneer press you know there was enough local advertising to go around to support these publications and it seemed like every city had like an alternative weekly or two at the time yeah and they weren't they weren't freebies you 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 they you know you you paid for a copy of the paper and how did he end up hooking up with the new york rocker we used to carry the paper at at uh, or folk joke opus when Alan uh, soon after Alan Betrock launched it in the spring of '76, and I got to know him long distance when I came back to the New York area to visit my folks on holidays. I would go to gigs in in Manhattan, so you know even before I left Minneapolis in '77, I saw Talking Heads, I saw television. Uh, you know, and a few others in New York at CBGB and other venues. And those bands uh, started touring uh, when I was still in, in Minneapolis. As I mentioned, you know, Ramones, Talking Heads, Make DeVille, Blondie, 
they all came through and played at this club in Minneapolis, in downtown Minneapolis called Jay's Longhorn. When I moved to New York City in like uh, August, September of 77, I connected with Alan Betrock and I wrote one or two things for the magazine under his uh, editorship. What was Alan like? He, he has this like Greg Shaw-like sterling reputation as a gracious dude who basically like nobody has anything bad to say about him. What was your experience of him like? You couldn't really be say anything bad about him because for a couple of reasons. One is that he was entirely willing and ready to share his enthusiasms with you. It wasn't like a guy, you know, who had this incredible record collection and was, you know, holding it above everyone else or felt that that made him some kind of special person. He, he really wanted to uh, spread the feelings and the inspirations that he derived from the music that he loved. The other thing was that he was not a careerist. You know, he could have been a successful A&R person for a major label. He had exceptional ears for like a hit record. He really did. But it was something that he, there was a kind of opportunity that he always declined. He was someone like in the years that I, all the years I knew him, he never had like a job. Hmm. I mean, he worked for a short time at Bleecker Bob's record store. I, I doubt that it lasted more than a few months but essentially he always pursued his own projects. And New York Rocker was the third magazine he had launched. He knew what he was doing at the scale that at which he wished to do it, if you get my drift. He wasn't interested in building an empire, although ultimately he started three different magazines, published multiple one-offs that were like paperbacks, and started a record label for which he produced and, you know, he produced records, signed artists to, you know, one-off or short-term contracts. I mean, the guy really accomplished a lot in, you know, in his time. He sounds like a great evangelist for the music and like a total non-rock snob. Total non-rock snob. So he ended up publishing maybe a dozen or so issues of New York Rocker and decided to end it. And first, why, why do you think he decided to end it? He published numbers one through 10. And what happened? Because it sounded like he had a good thing going with it. Like he, he, had, had, a very a, he, good, had, he had a very good thing going. There were a couple things going on. He, Alan suffered from a clinical depression. And in, 1970, in late 77, he was hospitalized. Hmm. He kind of had a breakdown. The, the other thing is that like, you got to imagine, like, if you were one of the first 12 people, if you were one of 12 people watching television at CBGB, uh, you know what I mean? Like, if you were one of the first people through the door and on that scene, like, that's going back to, like, 1975, at least. So, after about three years of this, you know, you kind of, he was ready to, like, move on to something else. He wasn't, he may not even known what that was at the time. You know, but he was just he, he no longer wished to bear the responsibilities of, of publishing and uh, editing, publishing and selling a magazine. So I told him that I thought that the thing had a future and that I was willing to take over, which I and I bought him out at the end of 77. And so you ended up being the publisher and editor. What was your vision for the magazine? I didn't really have a, much of a vision nor had I ever owned a business or edited or published a magazine. But 
I thought that the template, the model that he had created, the editorial model he had created was a viable one, you know, and it could still be deployed, right? You know, so I, I also felt that like it, it was clear by that point that it couldn't just be about like a relative handful of New York bands. Some of these bands that already were already on the verge of breaking up, like say Tough Darts. Others had already transcend had albums out and were already touring west of the Hudson River. So they had like transcended New York. You know, you weren't going to go see them at CBGB every third weekend. New York still had like a vibrant scene, multiple club, independent venues. And there were all these other scenes inspired by the New York scene, and I suppose to a lesser extent by the UK scene, that were springing up in cities as diverse as Vancouver, uh, Athens, Georgia, and uh, you know other places. So would you say part of you are trying to broaden its focus, make it a bit less New York-centric than it had been in the past? Yeah, that was, I think so. And uh, there were there were missteps made. There was probably too much coverage given to English fans. We should have stood up more for our own. But that's all hindsight, you know. And at the time, of course, uh, the Clash seemed like uh, very, terribly important, like one of the most important things happening in rock and roll, right? So mm. it wasn't wasn't any great surprise that you know there would be a decision to put them on the cover of the magazine. How was that received by local readers? Were they surprised that a UK band was getting the cover? Uh, it was even? a mixed reaction. And also, I started recruiting people, new people uh, as contributors who had not been contributors when Alan was running the magazine. And on the flip side of that, there were some people who had been regulars that I was not either not calling upon or not calling upon as frequently, and they kind of fell away. I mean, I have, again, I have some regrets about that because there were some, some valuable creative people that I should have uh, tried to utilize uh, more often, but that's the way it went down. And it took, you know, there are, hey, listen, man, there are people, survivors from that scene who probably still think of it as Alan Betrock's magazine, as they should, since he was the founding visionary, you know, but I did manage to publish 44 more issues over a period of almost five years. So, you know, credit where it's due. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned recruiting contributors. How are you finding these guys, Andy? People just came through the door or sent stuff in the mail, or even they called on the phone. They were friends of friends, you know, you know, you have somebody, a photographer like uh, Gary Green, Terry Bloom and others just call up and say, I'd like to come in and show you some pictures, you know, that I've done of these groups of these, these, these bands. And I, I'd say it looks good. Let's do something. It seemed like a place that gave new writers and photographers a chance. Yeah, that was the most important thing I accomplished. That was the most, that was by far more important than any boost the magazine may have given to the career of any particular artist or band. You know, I mean, the magazine was influential in terms of graphic style. I think that was important. But the most important thing in my mind, the real legacy is the, the door that was opened for these people 
you know, some of whom were like 21, 20, 22 years old, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you take somebody like Doug Simmons. You know, Doug Simmons, his first New York, he was living in Boston at the time. And I believe he had published a Boston rock fanzine, not the one called Boston Rock, but another one. And, you know, he he sent me, he either called me or he sent me a submission in the mail. I said, that looks good. We're going to run this. And that was his first new first byline in the New York publication. And Doug Simmons went on to become the man, the managing editor of the Village Voice. You know, he's he's working at CNN today. Were you surprised that so many of the contributors were musicians? It feels like every kind of independent musician in the late 70s, early 80s had their byline show up in the New York Rocker at some point. I think that's a little bit of an exaggeration. There were some people <laughs> who principally were musicians and and contributed, like uh, and like Peter Holzapple, Peter of the DBs. Peter Holzapple was first and foremost a songwriter and a musician. He made some contributions of great value to New York rocker. He never intended to become, you know, a, a rock journalist or a, a professional writer. Ira Kaplan was the record reviews editor of New York Rocker before his band Yola Tango ever formed. You know, I don't think he really yet had a vision of playing his own music, you know, writing his own songs. I mean, maybe, I'm sure that was in gestation, but he, at the time that, you know, he was working with me, he, the, the band, had, I think, I thought they played their first gig at a New York Rocker office party. Uh, so, you know, those things were happening simultaneously. But I don't, I mean, let's, let's be real here. I mean, no one from the Heartbreakers or uh, Talking Heads or Television, you know, or Mink DeVille ever, to the best of my recollection, contributed an article to New York Rocker. Yeah, but I'm thinking of people like Don Howland and uh, Miriam Lina and Billy Miller. And uh, I, I'm sure there's many other names I'm forgetting here as well, too. Yeah, absolutely. And these are those are people whose success or, uh, you know, what they did in the uh, forum of uh, performing and recording music. Obviously, we're not talking about the Deborah Harry level. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but yeah, sure. A lot of those people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, somebody like Don Howland was playing multiple roles on his... Columbus, Ohio, underground rock scene. You know, mm-hmm. he may have, he was he was writing he was pl- writing he was he was r- writing reviews or or publishing a fanzine. He was uh, writing songs and performing them and working with bands. He was probably promoting independent gigs and may have been working in the record store. School kids, um, I, I don't really know, but it's it, I would hazard a guess. I understand Byron Coley lived at the New York Rocker offices for a time. Is that right? Yes, he did. It was, uh, it, at the time, it didn't seem any stranger than a lot of other things that were going on <laughs> around there. And of course, he was certainly earning his keep. You know, he was cranking out the copy and being it, uh, performing invaluable services in other ways. Uh, you know, whether it was just like deliveries or just about anything, you know, you could, Byron wasn't too, wasn't too high and mighty to do whatever he could to be useful, you know, 
Yeah. And uh, he he's another person who says that I was the first person to ever pay him to write. He uh, inscribed that in a copy of one of his books. Hmm. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm grateful for that, for having had the opportunity to do that for him. You know, you mentioned the Village Voice. What was your relationship like with other local publications? I'm thinking Village Voice and Trouser Press. We did our thing and they did theirs. I didn't even necessarily see New York Rocker like in competition with these other publications. I mean, which may show you how little idea I had of how to run a business or the importance of advertising and so forth, you know, but of which I had very little idea and was never my area, it never became my area of expertise, like running a business. It was great when like Bob Criscow, you know, published my photo and singled me out as a person of significance, you know, in the voice. That was, that was cool. The, my relations with Ira, with Ira Robbins and his colleagues at uh, Trouser Press were probably better in the years and decades after our respective magazines ceased publication. It sounds like you guys were just too busy doing your own thing to even be aware of, of what was going on around we're you. We were doing our own thing. We were also getting more input. There was more interaction with like fanzines from around the country mm -hmm. than with anybody who worked at the Village Voice. There's kind of a fanzine quality to like New York Rockers writing as well too. There's and maybe that's what accounts for the love. All these musicians you mentioned, like from Athens, Georgia, and around the world, including like people from the New Zealand scene as well. Like there's this massive respect these musicians had for the New York rocker because it was kind of like a fanzine on a bigger scale. Yeah, that's what it was. And also the contents and the formatting of the contents kind of evolved. You know, there was like, it's not as though the format that I inherited from Alan just remained unchanged the way that like Time Magazine remained unchanged in its presentation for what seemed like decades. We did move things around and change things up, you know, and welcome uh, successive groups of, or I wouldn't say waves, but successive contributors in in all the areas of production, you know, so. I think maybe one, one other thing is you guys didn't really branch out and cover non-music things. It was the New York rocker. We're going to, sure, like the focus broadened beyond New York, but the focus was still music. You guys weren't interested in being a general cultural publication covering other things. It couldn't have done much more about fashion or the East Village art scene, or the East Village poetry scene, without becoming sort of something else. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's not that the people who worked with me weren't interested in those other areas of this underground culture, but they their primary focus was still on, on music. You know, what coverage we did give to, uh, these other areas was, it was sporadic. It wasn't all that coherent. Sometimes I let things, I let pieces uh, insert themselves into the magazine 
without a whole lot of due diligence, like actually reading this thing closely and going, okay, what is this? And is it right for us? You know, one example was a multi-part serial. It was called like something like, it was called Ford Fairlane. And this guy was a new wave private eye. Hmm. This is a fiction, right? <laughs> fic fic fictitious serial in multiple parts. So he was kind of like, I tell you the truth, man, I don't even know what kind of crime or crimes he was trying to solve. I can't, I can no longer remember that at all. But he would be like a habitue of the mud club or Max's Kansas City or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and there'd be drugs and and so on and so forth. And and you know, some band playing loudly in the room while he's trying to grill a potential witness. I, I tell you, I almost don't remember anything about it, although years later it became the inspiration, quote unquote for a film of this the, called The Adventures of Ford Fairlane starring Andrew Dice Clay. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, that name is absolutely familiar. Of course, when it became a movie, I never made, neither I nor New York Rocker as a corporate entity made a dime because there were never any contracts for anything that was published in New York Rocker. Yeah. It was just like an a, basically a verbal agreement that you were going to, contribute the following and you were going to get paid X. We didn't have, you know, I, it didn't give me exclusive universal rights to the, to your material in perpetuity. It must've been hard because you're wearing two hats. You're the publisher and the editor. You can't do everything with the same degree of attention. Yeah. That's something I realized uh, way too late, probably after the magazine had folded. That the, that the responsibilities of running the business might have been better handled by someone else. But, hey, you know, 26, 27 years old, you know, you, you're full of confidence and, and, you know, carried along on the wave of enthusiasm generated by your colleagues. So there you go. You were writing for the mag at the time as well. Yeah. Not a lot, but some. Was it still fun to be writing rock criticism and journalism at the time? It was not as much fun because I was so often preoccupied with other matters and other people's contributions. You know, I, I just remember being feeling like really under deadline pressure for something that I had promised to deliver. You know, I think that some of my work my contributions were substandard as a result of those pressures. But again, you know, I did what I did. Perhaps if I go back and if I were to ever go back and read over some or much of it, I might feel a greater sense of pride and, uh, you know, feel pretty good about what I did under the circumstances. I've been reading some of your pieces recently and they're great. I was reading a long piece you did on the cramps with Alex Chilton and that was an amazing piece. It was quite a weekend in Memphis. Yeah, and Chilton was uh, every bit the jerk you'd kind of expect, eh? Yeah, it, it did it did rather put me off from ever trying to be better friends with Alex. Although <laughs> we had, as over the years, as it turned out, we would have any number of mutual friends. He, he, there were you know the people who were friends of mine who became quite close to him. 
and thought very highly of him as a person and as an artist. Yeah. You know, I always thought highly of him as an artist. Was never quite so sure about the person. How important were the Max visuals? Well, I think they were important. And you see, like, all of these graphic techniques that almost became like uh, archetypes of so called new wave design, right? Mm -hmm. um, all these things. And there were, we had two art directors, one after the other. The first was Chris Nelson, and the next was Elizabeth Van Italy. Chris Nelson was noted for his lack of formal training, but a tremendous sense of daring, you know, like just the things that he was willing, that he was willing to try, which by and large, I accepted, despite what many people would have seen as their total non-commerciality, you know, I just thought, wow, I got a guy here who's like really talented, a singular and original talent, and I just have to like go with it, right? Yeah. Elizabeth was more had more formal training and experience. She could also perhaps work better with others, with other contributors, photographers, illustrators, uh, layout people, and so forth. She was very, very skilled at her ability to oversee that very critical aspect of uh, the publication. The covers are like so striking and like the kind of thing that you would want to see framed and hanging on your wall? A couple of them were my concepts. Grandmaster Flash and, and Tina Weymouth of Talking Heads together. That was my concept, my suggestion. It, there's a human switchboard with uh, Bob Pfeiffer and Myrna Markarian. It's a takeoff on uh, the famous painting, American Gothic. That was my idea. Uh, those, are, those are two that come to mind. There were probably a couple others. You mentioned coverage of like British bands and this Anglophilia phenomenon of like privileging trendy UK bands by like the, the music press in the US and by labels. And did you guys push back against that at some point? Sometimes, yeah. Was, I remember, I think there was one essay in particular by Glenn Morrow that addressed this point. Uh, I couldn't tell you what issue it appeared in or what the gist of his his writing was but yeah I, th I think so and also like we were we were starting to put more american bands on the covers at a certain point um uh after that initial sort of post-punk wave after the clash the gang of four the buzzcocks uh pil i think we were leaning more towards the american bands the mistake was not so much in privileging one country's output over the other. The mistake was not applying a really sharp, if there was a mistake, it was in not applying a really sharper critical eye to what the content of these groups' music was. I mean, one that still slightly rankles me to this day was some feature, two pages in length, that we gave to this band, this British band on Virgin called the Members. Oh yeah. You no, know, listen, man. The Members weren't weren't nothing. <laughs> the Members were not were not important then. The Members were not doing, saying, or creating anything that was especially that was particularly special in that moment. They were, the Members wouldn't have held a candle 
to the Dills or Perubu or uh, shit. I don't know. You know, yeah. The list goes on. Some, but some publicist from Virgin Records U.S. pushed, you know, pushed the story either to me or to one of my contributors, and voila, there's there's this big feature on the members. I wonder where were most of the story ideas coming from? Were you assigning things? Were they coming from contributors yes. or sort of a combination? I was assigning things because the publicists were often reaching out to me directly. Sometimes, sometimes the contributors would come to me with an idea or say they wanted to write, review an album or say they wanted to attend a show. But a lot of times I think it was my own, you know, I was making assignments. Where could you find New York Rocker? Like if you were living at that time, the late 70s, early 80s in New York, where would you find it? Newsstands in certain neighborhoods, not all record stores and to some extent the punk punk rock boutiques clothing stores and you guys had international distribution as well or was it subscription based that people it from around a, the we, world if you could call it distribution we did have some kind of deal with rough trade in london and they did take some number of copies per issue what was circulation like at its peak 30,000 30 to 35,000 that we had a high with in the magazine business is called pass along. In other words, more than one people, more than one person read the issue. And as you find out over the decades, subsequent decades, people held on to them. They didn't necessarily just, you know, toss it like, a, like a daily newspaper. So, yeah. you know, that was significant that those aspects of, of readership. So why did New York Rocker fold eventually? A couple things were happening at that time. You got to, first of all, I got to say, it was never really run like a business, like with, with profit as the overriding goal. Like we got to meet these numbers this quarter or with this many issues. It was never, there were never really those kind of rules in place or strictures in place. And my family bailed me out a couple of times financially bailed out the magazine and with the other thing that i remember happening around 82 was mtv was not on the air yet but like record american record companies were already starting to move into video promotion so they were moving or reallocating marketing dollars from print advertising to video i remember that being like a thing at the time in 19, circa 1982, you know? Also, some of my people, some of the most valued uh, staffers, they were ready to move on, you know, like how long are you gonna work for like 125 a week as an independent contractor? Mm -hmm. I mean, they were getting, now they had established uh, contacts and gained experience in the New York m music and media business, right? And they could get hired at Billboard. They could get hired at Smash Hits. They could get hired at Time Magazine, you know, for like design. And that's where some of them went to. Was New York City itself starting to change as well? Did that have any impact on it? I don't know if the changes were that big. It, the overall changes in the culture and economy of the city, I don't remember it being that significant for us 
in the period from 77 to 82. Although the clubs, like some of the clubs that closed, I, I don't know when Max is closed. Uh, tier three had a good run, but it was only like a year and a half. Hurrah, Danceteria. I think they may have both, they were gone by that time. Peppermint Lounge, I think maybe was gone. You know, those, so I guess those losses were significant, although when these places actually folded, I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, you know. CBGB hung on till 2006. What do you think is the MAG's legacy now? It's really hard to say because so very little of it is easily accessible online. The, the content that is online, most of it is behind a paywall at Rock's Back Pages. You have to be a subscriber. And those deals were done individually by the contributors since they retain the rights to their material. You know, like my stuff is on Rock's Back Pages, but so are articles by Roy Traken and other longtime contributors that made their own arrangements with the website, you know. So uh, the legacy, it's really hard to say. It's, it's kind of hard to imagine anybody under like 60 really having any memory of it. Um, also, as you pointed out, uh, act, the print copies are hard to find and often uh, pretty expensive to purchase on eBay or other sites. I, I don't know. I don't know what the legacy is, man. Really. It's kind of different different people ranging from musicians to contributors would remember it differently, you know? We're talking about or folk joke opus being more than a place to buy records. Do you think you accomplished a bit of that with New York Rocker being something more than a magazine, something that like fostered culture and connection? Yes. And the re one reason I know that is because a lot of the people who work beside me are still friends and colleagues today. And I'm very grateful for the fact that the people who work with me don't look back feeling like they were exploited, abused, not paid, and so forth. You know, I, I did try to treat people fair and square, and I think I mostly achieved that. So, and the office was quite a beehive of activity, you know, the DBs rehearsed there after hours. Yola Tango played this first gig at a New York rocker office party. And there were always people coming in and out. I remember, you ever see that movie, uh, the fictional film about Joy Division called Control? No, I haven't seen it actually. Okay, well, like one of the one of the people represented in that film is Rob Gretton, and he was the manager of Joy Division and then of New Order. Like Rob Gretton showed up at my office one time. You know, he was advancing the Joy Division dates for the their first U.S. tour that never happened. He took me out to dinner at a Thai restaurant in uh, Hell's Kitchen. We had an affable, you know, good good evening together, a good connection, you know. And, uh, you know, it's one of those, one of many people that, you know, I met and got to know through happenstance uh, because of my position with the magazine. A huge thanks to Andy for taking the time to chat with us. Back issues of New York Rockers show up frequently on eBay, and you can find a whole bunch of articles on the Rocks Back Pages website, including some of Andy's pieces. 
I appreciate you listening and would love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter. Our handle is at RockRitPod. Take care and bye for now.